let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> we can always redo in post. Of course. <laughs> Amar Lal is a Canadian musician and sound engineer living in Oakland, California. He currently releases music under his own name and runs Macro, a mastering and post-production studio. His most recent album, Gardening, was released on Never Content in 2019. Amar previously performed with Big Ups, Monty's Rook, and the Electric Eel Multimedia Ensemble. You can find him at um underscore r, that's three m's, u-m-m-m underscore r, or at www.amarlal.info. Different spelling of Amar in the website. Uh, we'll share it in the link. With the, <laughs> <laughs> it's A-M-A-R-L-A-L dot I-N-F-O. Thank you for sharing that bio, Andy. And um, Amar, thank you again for joining us today. Um, we both know you well and are super excited to have you on the show because um, from a friend perspective, it really seems like you carry through um, your life your creative practice, whether it's baking bread, exploring cities, building sound studios, um, you're genuinely excited to try new things. And we appreciate that you're trying this new thing for us, which you know is only our second episode. Um, yeah, thanks you, for having me on. Yeah, it's it's great to hear your voice. I We are only 10 minutes away from one another in <laughs> Oakland, but you know, always great to hear your voice. Um, so in light of all these interests that you have, um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you would define your creative practice, given that you do so many different things. You know, you, we mentioned a few things before, but you also create music, you draw, you edit sound, you photograph the world. Um, so yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about this diverse kind of output, I, I find it interesting in sort of like a diaristic way. But um curious to hear more about what you think. I realize this is a very big question, but no, um. it's, it's a great question, actually. Um, yeah, over the past few years, I've you know been trying to understand what makes me want to create things and what makes me want to share those things that I create with people, because there were a few years in there where I feel like my desire to make music, which is, I would say, probably my main practice. Um, kind of felt broken. Like I didn't feel very motivated to pick up an instrument and play music. Um, and I think what I'm learning slowly about myself is that um, I really just enjoy uh, trying to find ways to communicate to other people the things that I'm experiencing. And so the medium doesn't really, I mean, it matters, but the medium is shifting to me based on what kinds of things I'm trying to share. So if it's photographs and a visual thing that I want to share with people. Um, I've been trying to dip into that medium a little bit lately through some postcards and um, maybe it's more ideas about like how abstract music can be and some of the visual scores I've been trying to work on or just the ideas of being in a place, what it's like to be in a place. And I think you mentioned diaristic. Um, the, there's some kind of tour diaries that I've done in the past that try to replicate that with field recordings every day while I'm on tour. So I think, I th does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Did. did you have a follow-up, Al? I did. <laughs> you go first. You go first. 
just because Amari touched on the visual work, um, I've very much enjoyed seeing those on Instagram. And uh, I'm curious if you can talk more about how that came about. Um, and because it's visual, maybe try to explain a bit for the listener um, what it is and what it looks like. Sure, yeah. So for the month of August, uh, I gave myself the challenge every day of creating a graphic music score. Um, and what that means is like a series of symbols uh, or notation or a combination. Um, and I was doing them, I think, mostly as a set of six lines. And sometimes those were just rectangles. I would fill in the rectangles. And sometimes those were music staffs. Um, and that came from, I think, a couple of different places. Um, most concretely from this book called Sonorama by Claudia Molitor. Um, it's a book describing her audio piece that accompanies a two-hour train ride. Uh, and the piece has a visual score. It has a book that accompanies it uh, with essays about a sense of place and sound and transit, which I found super fascinating. Um, there's like these drawings interspersed throughout the whole thing. Um, and it got me thinking a lot about um, the music that I used to really love playing and performing. Um, I used to play in an ensemble called the Electric Eel Multimedia Ensemble, and we would play graphic scores. Um, so there's this tradition in avant-garde music where you could treat a picture or a graphic representation of symbols as a score and find different ways to interpret that abstractly and improvise. And it's super fun. So I've just been trying to think a little bit more about those things that I liked seeing and what it would be like to create some of those for myself. Um, when, you, when you start them, do you start with the visual representation or is there a piece of music in your head first or have you thought of, have you drawn one and then done that translation work um, into music? It's starting to get to that point. Um, I think the, this first set of 30 or so that I created, um, I was trying to treat them more like etudes or studies, um, partially because the medium is new to me and partially also because creating visual representations is totally new to me. I'm not a trained visual artist in any way. I don't really have any technique with watercolors or even really keeping a ruler straight, it turns out. <laughs> Um, so the ideas for every day would kind of be like, I would draw myself the six staffs and that would be the first hurdle to get over is like actually showing up and doing the thing every day. Um, and from there it would be a technique that I wanted to try. So maybe I want to try a watercolor wash and see what comes out from that. Or maybe I want to try painting with India ink in this style of, um, bird sonograms, or maybe it's, uh, playing with, what it looks like to twist the score or to try colored pencils or something. Um, now it's turning into a little bit of more of a composed thing where maybe there's an idea that I want to communicate using some of these, this sort of language that I'm starting to develop. Um, or maybe it's, I want to try combining a few of these things and seeing what comes out or maybe there is like a sound in my head that I'm trying to create an abstract representation of. So, I haven't been sharing as many of those because they don't quite come out the way I would hope. Yeah. But um, it's, it's been an interesting process to try to actually create a more composed piece. Interesting. 
And some of these are titled, where does that language come from? Yeah, so um, I've been trying to incorporate some markings from music notation and a lot of that is German or Italian markings, uh, expression markings saying like, you know, the tempo or the style that to be played in. Um, so I think there are some captions, I think that were maybe not intended as titles that could be fun titles. And then um, uh, mm -hmm. there, there, there is one recently that's like a wild wildfire nocturne that is titled. Um, that was just, yeah, <laughs> trying trying to represent the the orange sky that we experienced here in Oakland uh, the week after Labor Day, um, and you know, sort of this, yeah, just the uh, that kind of this, both the visual representation of the sky and also the that feeling of like oppression and burning and almost mm -hmm. the kinds of sounds that you might hear in like Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima or something like that. Which that kind of brings me to this question that I have um, for you about memory, because I didn't associate these um, visual scores with memory necessarily, but I was thinking about this question, thinking of how you take a field mic with you sometimes um, <clears throat> when we are doing various things in the Bay Area. And it made me question um, if you have a strong memory association with a sense of sound. Absolutely, um, yeah. Um, and I, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. That's, that's almost exactly why I bring the mic with me is um, remembering the same way you might take a photo of a moment, for me, those field recordings represent that sense memory um, and trying to communicate that and what I might have seen in it to other people. It's so interesting to me because I associate memory with like taste and smell and sometimes sight. Like, I don't think I've ever associated a memory with sound, but now I'm really compelled to like challenge myself to do that yeah I think it can hold a very strong emotional memory and I think the the easiest way to think about that is the way that a record make you, makes you feel in a moment or a song or an album mm. um, a lot of people hold very strong associations to the music of their teen years um, whether that's you know like a pop punk song that really used to get you amped up we want a The song you list you used to listen to when you broke up with your first boyfriend or girlfriend. I think those are great examples of like the emotional impact that emotional memory that music or sound could carry. And I think um, treating what we think of as, as like more traditionally non-musical just non-melodic sounds as music is another way to think about that. So the sounds of your environment can carry a similar memory if you can attach them to them. So in your ambient work, I think that comes across, you know, very much with the field recordings that you can, you can hear. Um, for listeners, though, there seems to be a major difference between 
your work with big ups, which um, I'll put in right here during post. <laughs> treasure every minute the fact that i'm here and i'm living within it sometimes i feel like the pace of my life's too fast and i think about the time that's passed i can't remember what happened yesterday the day before or anything at any rate anyway i think what i'm trying to say is i don't want to live a life like this what and now <laughs> And now display the difference by cutting to your ambient work right here. Also donning in post. through line that connects um the two the two for you i think um the way that i've been trying to think about this lately uh is i mean big ups was a very performative fun physical loud experience um it's music that i still enjoy creating but have not been just because i'm not around people who want to make that, that together uh, and I think that, you know, I think the performance was really the focus in that band. It, we all loved playing live so much. We all, something just clicked for all of us when we were doing that together. No matter how bad we were feeling that day, once you're on stage, it just, something turns on. Um, I think the ambient records are more about exploring texture in music for me, um, and texture and emotion together. And uh, a lot of that comes from some of the work I had done as a sound designer, mixing and sound designing advertisements and learning a little bit more about texture in that way. Um, and lately I've been trying to think a little bit more about rhythm and try to break out of those patterns and maybe I can eventually bring them back around to each other. But uh, to, I think that's, that's sort of the framework that I've been thinking about it in lately, if that makes sense. You speak about texture and something that you introduced me to and I wasn't really familiar with is the musical instrument of harmonium. I had never, I mean, maybe I've heard it in music before, but I didn't really know what it was. And then when I saw you perform last year at El Rio, you lugged this big <laughs> instrument into the space um, and started playing it and it's just it's such a beautiful instrument i'm wondering if you could explain for the listeners what the instrument is and um share a little bit about your interest in this particular historic instrument yeah of course so a harmonium is a traditional indian instrument it's it's got a keyboard usually of you know two to three octaves um and there are electric and there are pump versions. And what you're doing is you're pushing air over a set of reeds um, and creating this really physical sound that it turns out. Um, most harmoniums also have a set of what they call stops. So they're like drone notes that can, if you pull out a stop, the, the drone note will play the whole time. And that comes from 
like raga music in India. Um, and I, the harmonium that I have, I found on Craigslist in New York. Um, actually had a hilarious time procuring it. Um, it just came up for a very cheap price. And I went to someone's loft in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and it was this humongous, like thousand plus foot square foot loft. Um, and everything in the loft was in one corner of this place. And the rest of it was entirely empty. And the whole loft smelled like cat pee. <laughs> just like, as soon as you walked in. Like you, like, so, and just one person lived there? Yeah, and it, you like you walked in, you wanted to cover your mouth, and uh, the person selling it to me just wanted me gone as soon as I got in there. It was this woman, and she was saying, yeah, I don't know, it's my boyfriend's, like, he knows about it, I don't know anything, like, I was trying to ask her what the tuning was, or how to play it, even, so, you know. It, and, you're also, and you're also like, how do I get this loft from you? Yeah. <laughs> Come for the harmonium and leave for the loft. Like, are you guys moving out? Is that why everything's in a pile over here? Or can you move in and just take over? It seems like there's extra space. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's actually, it's a really interesting instrument for me to play. I, I enjoy playing it because it's, it creates these absolutely giant feeling sounds. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like a pipe organ coming out of this small little box. Um, but it's also really texturally and performatively interesting because uh, a set of the stops on the instrument are which sets of reeds the sound, the air will pass through. So you can have all of the stops closed and it's a very closed, tiny sound. You can open up the lower stops and you get this deep bassy rumble and you can open up some of the higher stops and you add more and more harmonics. So even just having this limited range of notes and just being able to push air of these reeds you it adds a lot of different textures just by playing with those what does your process for starting new music look like yeah it's kind of constantly shifting um a lot of the times it's picking up something and just noodling around and playing for the sake of playing and something sometimes something sticks and something doesn't or something doesn't stick um, for example, I have a keyboard in my life for the first time now in 10 years. And sometimes it's really interesting to just open up a, a bit of software and a new software instrument that I don't know anything about and hit the keys and see what comes out. And from there, maybe like you're inspired to create a certain sound or an idea. Um, the texture thing really starts to come into play for me when I start shaping whatever it is that I'm making. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as like a sound engineer, it's, it's to me, that's where the impact is created, is how the texture shapes over the course of the composition. I mean, you say it's shifting, but actually that sounds consistent with the other things we've talked about in the improv work with big ups and the visual work. It seems like there's a degree of just playing around until mm-hmm. you find something. Yeah, a, you're probably right. I mean, even something more structured like the, the graphic scores, it's really just playing around until something sticks. So. Interesting. How often do you work on music throughout the week? I mean, I imagine it probably changes week by week, but if you were to quantify the amount of time you spend on music, what, what do you think you, how much time do you think you spend on it? 
I think in the past two or three months, it's kind of dropped to a place that I'm not really happy with. Um, and it's really like max and a few hours a week, maybe a lot less even. Uh, there was a period of time early in the pandemic where I had a nice opportunity to, to reshape a lot of my routines and it meant that I was playing music again for an hour or more every night. And it's one of the most musically productive phases that I've had in years. Um, yeah, it, it completely depends on the routine that I'm able to create around it, I think. What is that? So for me, you know, earlier this month, I was super productive with writing, like writing every day for an hour felt very productive. And then like the last couple of weeks, it's just dropped off and that just feels like super frustrating. Is that an experience you have um, as well? Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm learning to come to terms with those waves a little bit more. Um, it, there was a Philip Glass talk that I saw at NYU almost 10 years ago at this point that I think about constantly. Um, and people were talking about how do you come up, how do you write so much music? How do you come up with all this stuff? And his whole idea was that he, every single day he sits down in front of the piano for three hours. <laughs> and even if he just sits there and doesn't open the lid, he's, he just, every day he has to show up and, uh, that way, like the day that something comes out right or the day that he's playing the same things he's always been playing and something different happens and he's there for the magic, he's shown up for himself to do this thing. And um, I think this is like a theme I see a lot in creative self-help books. I'm, I'm like addicted to creative self-help books. Do they work? <laughs> I've, never, I've never tried one. You know, I was so skeptical. Um, and sometimes I still am. I am so skeptical of the whole self-help genre. I, I was going to say I feel a little cynical about this approach of Philip Glass's because then like where is your element of play? Where's or does he ha or does he like maintain an element of play within that three hour time? It sounds yeah. like the, the three hour play is like the box to play in, if that makes sense. I see. So he's like allocating the three hours and he's and he just allows himself to do whatever he wants to do, but it has to be within those three hours every single day. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily has to be within those three hours. Like it could extend, but it's like every day at a minimum, he's got to show up for himself and his practice and just be there for those three hours. Mm -hmm. And did you, do you find that like inspiring and something to work towards for yourself? I, I do, yeah, because I, I think the biggest hurdle for me is showing up. Um, that's sort of why I gravitate towards things like these daily exercises, these process-driven things where, you know, I'm setting myself a rule where I have to show up to do this thing every day. And mm -hmm. it's hard, it, it, you know, to, to do that for yourself, to make even 20 minutes to do that for yourself every day. It can be really hard. And, but the minute you do it, it's so satisfying. Yeah. Um, Something that was making me feel better about artistic practice, and we talked to our last guest, Rachel Mendelson, about it, was how the period, you know, for me when I'm not writing, um, 
but am doing other things like reading a lot or researching a certain idea is also part of the process, even though there's not any activity of production. Um, and yeah, I wonder if you, if, you know, knowing you, it seems like there's always things stirring around your head. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought of that part um, of your life as fulfilling some neat uh, artistic intention. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, to be producing constantly would be completely exhausting. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, what, what I'm th- kind of thinking back to is these, these two concepts from a creative self-help book. Um, <laughs> it's Julie Cameron's The Artist's Way, probably the most famous one. Um, she has two concepts, one called an artist state and one called reading deprivation. Um, and the artist state is like this idea of making time for yourself once a week to take yourself to a museum, on a walk, to a park, just these, these things that, you know, might not seem like part of your artistic process, but they are really in a way like these chances for your mind to wander or to be entertained by or inspired by new things that you might not have otherwise made time for. Um, and the flip side of that is this idea of reading deprivation where we're, we have such a huge assault of information in our lives at all times that um, sometimes that intake is actually what's keeping us from spending the time to assimilate this new information and process it through a creative medium. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so one of her exercises is reading deprivation where for a week you're not taking in books, music. Uh, I think it can kind of shift to whatever media you want it to. Uh, but just noticing how much intake you have and how much, when you cut that out, how much space it leaves for, for output. Um, so that, I think that actually is more of my problem is not so much that I run out of things to make, but that I kind of inundate myself with things to take in and that stops me from creating things, if that makes sense. Definitely does. I, I struggle with this idea of showing up and I love this point about kind of like recontextualizing what that time is because in a way it's like a gift to yourself to take yourself out on a date, for example, to go to a museum or go on a walk, or it's a gift to give yourself 20 minutes to just focus on your own creative practice, which leads me to there is a creative self-help book called The Gift by Lewis Ah. Hyde. (laughs) Are both of these plugs? Beryl, is this a plug for The Gift? Amar, is this a plug for the one you mentioned? (laughs) Uh, yeah, everyone should read the artist. of time I would love to um, move on to this question about podcasts 
that's why we're here oh yeah we did we say the name of the podcast at the front this is imagining podcasts (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah i mean we as we talked to you about before interest we were so um privileged to hear more about your creative process and practice and um we're curious to hear how you either would translate that into a podcast or um you know have you envisioned making a podcast before and what what does that look like i haven't envisioned making a podcast before i think the these tour diaries that i've worked on in the past where they're probably the closest thing to a podcast that i would ever make um those are just to explain them, they're um, daily recordings for, you know, 28 or 30 days on a tour where we're in a different city every day. And I would go for a walk and just make field recordings and then come back and then cut them into these little sound collages. Um, And they were all made using what are called binaural microphones. So there's a microphone in each ear. And if the listener is listening on headphones, they hear it almost as if they were there in this like hyper real way. So you had the microphones in your ears as you were walking. So if you walked for a stretch of twenty minutes, you recorded for twenty minutes, and then you cut it into. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did you ever Uh, think about doing like, like drawing a map and giving and doing a full twenty minutes and sending it someone on the same course? I've thought about leading sound walks and recording them um, partially because the map drawing would be a fun aspect of that um, and getting to define things like, you know, the the spots on the map where you might hear a certain sound or notice a sound mark or um, yeah, never thought of distributing that though. That's an interesting idea. Uh, I think the closest thing that I can think to do if that is, um, this Italian artist who releases things under the moniker of La Cosa Preziosa. Um, She ran something called the Secret Soundscape Club where every month she would email a mailing list, a description of a place that she made a recording and like a one to two minute recording or sound collage that she made in that place. There'd be like photos that would accompany it and things like that. Does she provide any sort of um, introduction to that soundscape in the recording? Like, do you hear her say what you're about to experience in any way? Um, No, I think it's all written. Um, But one of the interesting things that she does that I I think very few people will do is she talks a little bit about what is significant in the recording in terms of actually what's historically significant. So maybe you're in a train station and the significance of that train station, which is all marbled and was built in this year and was a hub for this thing. Uh, It's a really interesting way to try to transport yourself to that space and imagine what it might've sounded like in a certain era. So if we're just to tease out this idea, the tour diary. um, So I'm curious, You know, there's sort of two parts. I think we talked about this before. I think maybe right when you'd come back from one of those walks, I think you were playing in San Francisco and you said, 
you would go out and it just cleared your head um, ahead of going into a really heavy performance. Uh, so I'm curious, like what you looked for in these walks and then if you were to translate it and you did translate it into your tour diaries on your band camp, but if you were to translate into a podcast, what would you try? What would you hope that the audience received? And it seems like in this case, there's very, there, there could be a very big difference between the two. Yeah. So maybe I'll start by describing the process for those specific sandwalks. Um, and every day when we were in this, a different city, I mean, part of it, part of this came out of being on tour and you know, tour you're in the car for anywhere from four to nine or 10 hours a day. And then you're in a new city and it's this whole place that you could possibly explore, but you have to load all of your equipment into a venue at 4 p.m. and maybe try to eat dinner at six, but not too late because if you eat too late and then you're thrashing around on stage, you might want to vomit. <laughs> uh, and then you're going to be hanging so out in this the dark scenes. bar for like six hours between the doors opening and your set and everyone leaving. And then you finally get to load out. So you don't really get a chance to see all of these new cities that you're going to unless it's a short drive day. Um, so the exercise that I kind of came up with for myself was to pick a park or a landmark or some other thing within say like a mile of the venue. And I would kind of wind my way there, just kind of turning left and right, wherever sort of looked interesting or sounded interesting. Um, and it sort of turned into like this meditative exercise where, you know, because I'm recording everything, I'm really paying attention to the sounds around me and also even the direction that my head is turned because that changes the way it translates to each of the two microphones and it changes the viewer's listening perspective. You know, they might be looking forward when actually the sound I want to hear is to the left of them. So I'd have to turn my head to the left so their attention is focused there. Um, so you were thinking ahead to it being listened to. Yes, it, but mostly in the moment, not so much like planning the sounds that I wanted to try to capture because that was completely by chance. But, yeah, you know, there would be like I can think of uh, Prague as a great example where I just went for a walk and came up against came up into this intersection where there were um, the traffic signals were clicking away to denote that pedestrians could cross. But they were all clicking in this totally random, like intersecting pattern, three different traffic signals that were all near each other. And if you stood in just the right spot, it sounded like you were totally surrounded by all of these clicking things. So, you know, just these chance things where you would walk into something and be like, okay, I'm gonna stand here for the next two minutes and listen before I move on, because this is something interesting to capture. You mentioned um, being interested in this Italian artist who's using field recordings in an interesting way. And I'm wondering, do you listen to any podcasts that you think you sound in an interesting way? I actually have a really difficult time listening to podcasts. <laughs> uh, I'm not surprised because you're very sensitive to different sounds. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing for me to passively listen to or to have kind of wash over me the way some people might have talk radio wash over them. 
Uh, yeah, it really has to be a concerted either maybe I'm washing the dishes with a pair of headphones on or like doing a task that I really can focus on what's being said because otherwise I'm going to miss the whole thing and I'm not going to do either task very well. <laughs> so you just, you just lose focus. Yeah, I lose focus and then I start to tune back in and I'm completely lost. Yeah. Really. <laughs> It's okay. I, I'm in this podcast and I don't really listen to podcasts either. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, it's, it's a totally interesting medium for what you're, I think you're talking about barrel is, you know, a lot of people are really interested in the way that you might sound design a podcast and the way you might use extra sounds to try to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you think like, a podcast could be, is there a way that a podcast could be music or vice versa? Like what mm, makes a podcast question. a yeah. podcast? I think uh, it's mostly talking, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, what, that's what makes a podcast a podcast. It's like, it's, you know, you're, it's a discussion or it's an explanation or it's a story. It's a, I am, you know, definitely someone who's super open to the definition of music and what it could be. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. If, if you were to like find a through line of like some sort of theme that runs through all the conversations that you have with your friends or like a conversation you have with yourself kind of over and over again, I'm curious to hear what that would be like something he comes back to in conversations or like do i think we have been talking like i think that i speak with you amar a lot about creative process and like projects that you're working on and um I always really enjoy our conversations about that particular topic and I like it's not a topic that comes up with a lot of my my peers regularly I mean I speak about it with Andy too and I think that's part of the reason Andy and I were so curious to develop a podcast such as this and so I, I, I bring that up as an example because I'm trying to like tease out like maybe there, you just mentioned pot, what are podcasts about? Well, podcasts could be about anything, but like in terms of sound, it's, it consists of people talking, right? Like, right. like in some ways your field recordings would be a failed podcast because like no one's talking in them necessarily but like that could be great if you like propose that they're a podcast and like insist that they be a podcast and and try to like manipulate the medium in some way um right i mean maybe the idea of a more composed soundscape like trying to use the field recordings that i have to create a specific narrative um, or to use them to enhance a narrative, if that makes sense. Um, but that could still be like in like in your ambient work. There's still a narrative through line, and we would call it a song. I f- I feel like there's something maybe closer when we're thinking about 
translation, which is what I think you're doing in your visual work and what you mentioned in the Italian artists, where you there is a degree of translation that needs to happen between the sounds that you're collecting and conveying whatever experience or narrative to the audience. And I guess in this case, I mean, talking could is the clearest way to provide a narrative, but yeah, I'd be yeah. curious if there's another way. There, there's something in that's kind of like the, the gears are turning a little bit, <laughs> uh, where, like, I think, Beryl, you're right. It's, I love talking to people about process. Um, and maybe what would be really interesting is to talk to people about their process and also present like hyper real recordings of them engaging in their process. Mm. Whether that's, you know, the, these like really turned up sounds of someone's brush moving across paper and oil paint splattering, mm. or if they're a woodworker, the machines that they're using and things like that. Uh, but just giving a, a different sort of abstracted perspective on their process in addition to a discussion about it. That's a cool idea. Really cool idea. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast in which we talk about <laughs> process. <laughs> <laughs> it's also it. like, I love that idea because it, it would, it would suggest something visual to a viewer without actually providing listener. that to the, sorry, listener, oh my <laughs> without actually providing that for them. So it'd be this like very active form of listening. I don't, I think what the, the other interesting thing about this idea is like the podcast seems like a podcast you would listen to yourself. Like you can't listen to something like that passively. You would have to sit and like follow the narrative which is these which like consists of these abstract sounds i also like the idea of showing play in in that moment and i'm just thinking about like you know philip glass sitting for three hours and his process is it's not him performing in front of a an audience it's him you know messing up starting over doing something out of tune or out of rhythm same thing with you know any other artist there's just scribbling that doesn't amount to anything mm -hmm. and showing like this is not the com this is not the complete picture yeah, but I it's mean, what what took to get there there's like a an extreme degree of intimacy there too because you know i'm not talking when i'm writing music right i i don't think anyone is talking to themselves that much when they're painting or making art in general so it's 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 a pretty quiet process you're by yourself maybe there's some music playing in the background or something but to ask a listener to really focus on the sounds of that moment and like what it's like to be there in that moment it's kind of an interesting counterpoint experience counterpoint unless it's a a band you know what was what were the sounds of you all in that practice space yeah, or what are the sounds of you in the back of the studio eating chips? <laughs> yeah. Or like, what's the sound of a someone who's making music on a computer with their headphones on? Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. Like, do you just hear the keys of the keyboard clunking and no sound to go along with them? Mm -hmm. 
Very John Cage. Super. <laughs> Would you, Amar, envision any sort of interview happening before, after, or during? With- I mean, or not during. not during of, but would would the music would the interview layer on top of? Yeah, I mean, I think the traditional podcast format would be to use those as nice interstitial moments, you know. But it it would be, I think, more interesting to me personally to present it as a separate portion of the podcast, mm-hmm. where you're asking a listener to sit for a couple minutes and maybe even close their eyes, but just to envision that they're actually there in the room. I like the idea. I just got chills. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I like the idea of the interview being secondary to the sounds of the process and anything it being like, if you're doing the dishes and listening to the podcast, the, there might be talk for a short amount of time and then it just blends into the, the sound and becomes that ambient work, which I, I know you like a lot. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you introduce the whole thing with one of the more interesting sounds from the room and it, it gets you sight of that mindset of like, what is that? Like, what am I about to hear about? Mm. And would you foresee um, sharing with the listener what they've listen to or what they can expect to hear or do you Mm. allow the listener to deduce what that is based on the interview i think there would be a degree of both um do you think they're part of the fun of it and the play of it is that there's some imagination involved um because you're missing the visuals and you really have to try to think about what you're hearing and what that translates to. Um, But I do think it it would be important to set the scene for most people. Um, You know, whether that's a description of the room you're in or what's happening, like maybe, you know, this person's at the table with their watercolors out and he's got a putty knife and something else. Here we go. Um, In our last interview, and I, uh, with Rachel Mendelson, we talked a lot about curation and I'm thinking about just your work in ambient sounds. And if you, does it ever feel at all like curation? Like say you're on one of these walks, for example, and you hear, you know, there's a train going, there's crosswalks, but the sound you're interested in is like a bird on a wire. And then you'd have to like focus to draw that much quieter sound out. Is there a degree of like picking and choosing and curating you know, the ambient, you know, soundscapes you make? Absolutely. I think that's, that's what um, delineates it from just being a field recording. I think the, the field recording is just the act of recording the whole thing and uh, leaving it as is. But I think what makes it, in my mind, at least a composed piece of music or sound art is going back through that recording and curating the sections that I want people to hear and, you know, juxtaposing them in certain ways or having them transition from one section to another. Um, So a lot of, you know, the ways I tried to do that with the tour, the tour diaries is they're, you know, mostly under 10 minute recordings from hour long walks. And 
I still want it to feel like you're on a walk that you're transitioning from space to space. And that, I think that's that curatorial aspect mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. you're not going to hear 20 minutes of me walking on a cobblestone street to get to the really, really interesting sound. You might hear 30 seconds of that. And then we're going to focus on the actual more interesting sound. Would you do that? Would you edit the day of or the next day or did it happen after tour? It was all the same day. So it, wow. it would turn into this daily exercise of, yeah, go to, um, go on the walk. And then after the show, I would take 20 minutes or an hour before bed and just cut it all together. And there would be a couple of days where we might not have internet service. And so I wouldn't get to upload it that day and I might have to upload a chunk of them in, in a batch or maybe that night for whatever reason, I really didn't have time and I would cut it in the van the next day and upload to the next day. But for the most part, it was all same day. That's why the that... shows ended late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was a nice way to wind down at the end of the night. I think there was a lot of winding up that I remember. but <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, in that way, it's great to be like, okay, here's like a quiet contemplative thing that I can do after this very raucous night. <laughs> and how does that contrast to the, the way in which you... Um, composed the music for your album Gardening. Gardening Gardening is an interesting uh, album to me personally because those recordings span three or four years I think um, and they're just pieces that I'd had sitting on the back burner that were all composed in very different ways and I wanted to do something with each of them whether it was releasing them or adding a video to them or something else and putting them together as a collection and sequencing them and editing them a little bit and adding these these little interludes kind of gave them a different purpose to me, like a sense of wholeness or a sense of like, now I can move on from these things to the next project. Mm -hmm. um, but all of those were composed very differently. The majority of them were like improvisations really, you know, just sitting down and seeing what would come out in an hour. Uh, they were a lot from a period of, mu of music creation in my life where it would be like, well, what can I make in one sitting? And then that's the thing now. It's interesting how your use of found sound contrasts to the use of um, sound that you compose and like how the processes differ as well. And I wonder, um, how uh, you could implement the compositional process into the podcast idea that you have. Because the, like, the found sound would be what you described, like the process of the person you're recording, whether that be like a paintbrush going across a canvas. Yeah, um, I, I imagine there would still be some curatorial aspect to that part of the podcast. Um, or know, supplemental composition on your part. Oh, like actual, like musical melodic material. You, you're thinking. No, or I would that. <laughs> this oh. is your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I'm just I'm thinking like, you know, it might make sense to record someone for like an hour or even two hours, and then cut that down to like a forty second soundscape. 
yeah, I mean, it can, there's like, I, I, I like the idea of four minute podcasts. Sounds great. I would listen Me to those. That, that I can pay attention to. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I also like how you want to dictate how someone listens to it. Like you're suggesting that they sit somewhere and close their eyes. And I'm assuming you would want them to be in a silent space so that they could really focus on the podcast. I, it's interesting because I think like most podcasts don't, um, don't require listeners to change anything about their environment in which they're listening to that podcast. I think Beryl, you brought up something really interesting there. The idea of like changing the environment or changing the, the, the idea of active listening. I think it would be maybe a podcast that I'd be even more interested in would be to host something like a deep listening club. Mm. Um, and deep listening is this practice coined by Paulina Oliveros where it's like almost like a meditative thing, but you're setting an intention and setting a, a mindset to like sit and actively listen to your environment for a certain amount of time. And, um, I, oh, I, so you're not even listening. You're not listening to like a score, for example, you are listening to just where you're sitting. Exactly. And, um, you know, it's like almost a John Cage thing in that way, but right. Um, yeah, like I have like this zine uh, that's like compiled of people's different deep listening exercises where it's like maybe you sit with two people and you are going to listen to each other's heartbeats for 10 minutes or maybe you're going to sit in a circle and you're going to imagine the soundscape of a glacier melting or something. Um, but I used to listen when I first started learning a little bit about med meditation, I used to listen to these guided meditations that were mostly silent. You know, the person would introduce, I think it was Jack Cornfield leading a lot of these. He would introduce the concept, um, set you like say, you know, seat yourself in this way and we're going to start breathing like this and focus on in and out in and out. And then he would just kind of trail off. And it'd be silent for like five or six minutes and he'd just be sure to come back to the breath in and out. All right. Now we've, we've moved into a sound meditation podcast. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. into it. Using well, ambient, ambient uh, sounds. I, so yeah. You, and, I, and I'd be so curious to, because when you said deep listening, I was like, I don't really know what that is and like how I would do that. Yeah, like it, it would almost have to be a prompt, you know, whether it's asking people to do something in the environment that they're in, that they're listening in, or asking them to go to a certain environment and listen. Uh, right, maybe, or like you provide them. Some, yeah, or like even you would say in, in the case of the previous example of recording an artist process, you could provide some sort of guidance for how to to listen deeply to that soundscape that you recorded and right. composed yeah i like the idea of you curating the meditation soundscape mm -hmm. me too oh interesting so there there's like a composed soundscape but before that you're kind of helping people set the intention and the mentality to mm -hmm. listen to it with yeah yes and then that brings you into different types of meditation experiences 
rather than just your own room. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's this, and it's like the something that, you know, the, like we talked about the gift. It's like what you found, create what like the creative experience you found or artistic moment you found in the space. Then you reshared. Yeah, definitely very interesting. I'm also super. Do we have a? Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, do we have a um, title that maybe comes to mind for the for your podcast <laughs> with this in mind? <laughs> um, interesting. I think we got two. We got we got two ideas. We got the artistic process sharing inter, quick interview. And then a soundscape of that person creating the art, and then the meditation walkthrough guide soundscape. I think, yeah, I think for the, like now I'm kind of most attached to this last concept that we've been playing with a little bit. Great. And I like the idea of calling it the deep listening club. The deep mm. listening club. So that it's, you know, kind of hinting at this shared experience. Mm-hmm. I like it. Me too. I- it makes me think of the um, Voltaire quote that you have on your band camp um, for gardening. Which... Oh, yeah. You must cultivate your garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, that that quote was all about, like, you know, you must, basically it was like, you must show up for yourself, but it was also about, you know, I have to tend to my creative output and to help it grow into something fully foreign to share.